really grateful to be here with you at Hume once again. Jason went and got this podium for me or this music stand because one time I was here, this is a really sturdy one. One time I was here and it kept sinking. And before the sermon was over, I was preaching from my knees. So anyway, this one has a little bit more for us. I'd like to turn your attention to the book of Colossians. We'll look at chapters 1, verses 1 through 14. And our series this week at Hume is going to be Maturing in Christ. Maturing in Christ. And we'll take our messages from the book of Colossians. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, just as in all the world. Also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even it has been doing in you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God and truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you, and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthen with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints and light. For he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we turn our attention to you this morning, we pray that you would allow something to transpire among us that we could only attribute, that we could only attribute to you. I know, Father, that what I have to offer isn't much more than crumbs. And yet here I stand before a room full of people, and every one of them comes with unique challenges or joys in his or her heart. Maybe there's sorrows from loss. Maybe there's confusion from life's complexity. Maybe there are estrangements, broken hearts, or joys that are soaring. I can't imagine that one person could stand in front of a room like that and believe that he could connect with every heart unless you're involved in the transaction. Your son once took something like crumbs, five loaves and two fish, and he blessed them and multiplied them, and he fed a multitude and everybody left satisfied. Would your Holy Spirit please do something like that again this morning? Take the crumbs that are offered and apply them in such a way that each person would leave here this morning saying, there was something in that message that spoke to me, and they would sense that it was an affirmation of your individual love for each person in this room. And we ask this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.
My, my wife and I, as we get up in the morning, we do devotions together. Um, often we've gone through the Psalms, often we go through uh, Malcolm Geith's book on the Psalms and so on. And then uh, we've been doing lately a thing called Pray As You Go. It's a devotional. And it's very rich. And recently they did a devotion on Mark 12, 1 through 12, and it began with a Latin choral piece called Dulce Jesu Miu. Sweet Jesus, my sweet Jesus. And the narrator then said this, My sweet Jesus, look with mercy on my soul. This is not the prayer of someone proud or haughty or self-satisfied, but of a person aware that they have weaknesses and shortcomings, aware that they cannot do without the help and love and the mercy of God. I like that honesty, that truth, that self-awareness. We come to the text not as words once written or spoken, but as the living word of God that still speaks. It is an inspired text, and to the text we bring hungry hearts that we might be fed. We bring broken hearts eager to be mended. We bring hearts lacking knowledge as to how we might navigate life's complexities, eager to understand, weary of our own foolishness. We bring estranged hearts eager to be reconciled to God and to others. This is not a book that was once spoken. It is a book, if we're honest with ourselves, that still speaks to us in the very relevancy of the life that we live before God and before the watching world. Such were the circumstances as Paul wrote to a church where it appears he had never been. How did he know about the church in Colossae? There's no evidence he was ever there. He was told in verse 4 about them. Epaphras told him, it says in verse 7. There's a little backstory we need to get into. On Paul's third missionary journey, he spent about three years in the city of Ephesus, two years of them teaching in the school of Tyrannus. And Ephesus was a leading city in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. It was a seaport at the end or the beginning of a major trade route. And Colossae was on that trade route. It was close to Laodicea and Hierapolis. And while Paul was teaching and disciple-making at Ephesus, it was said that all in Asia Minor heard the gospel. How is that possible? He never left Ephesus in those days unless he was reproducing reproducers, his approach to disciple-making. In Ephesians chapter 2, or excuse me, 4, verse 12, it says the role of the pastor-teacher is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. The word for equip there is an interesting word. It's katartismos in the Greek. And it had many uses, but primarily two. It was a medical term, and it was used to speak of mending a broken bone and setting it so that it could become useful again. And it was used to speak of rigging a ship for full sail so it could re leave the harbor and fulfill the purposes for which it was wired. Paul was mentoring and discipling like that, mending broken lives and deploying them. And it appears that Epaphras was one of these kinds of people. I think all Christian ministry and all maturation in Christ should be moving us towards either being a disciple eager to learn to do this sort of thing or else a person who's deploying other people. It may be small scale, we do one or two a year, or large scale, maybe God opens up doors for us. But we should all, if we want to grow in Christ, 
be concerned about the welfare of the people around us. Uh, Dawson Trotman, who actually spoke here at Hume, you can go up to, to some of the cabins up here on the hill, and there are pictures of him actually speaking here at Hume. Dawson Trotman was the guy that started the ministry of the Navigators. He preached a sermon once called Born to Reproduce. And in that, in that sermon, he says this, a person is physiologically mature when they could reproduce physiologically. And a person is spiritually mature when they could reproduce spiritually. That is, you could lead a person to Christ, disciple that person, and deploy that person so that they could lead people to Christ and disciple them. If you don't know how to do it, don't beat yourself up. But if you're content to stay like that, then go ahead and beat yourself up. <laughs> we should be engaged in this process. I met a man once named David Morkin, and he used to preach with Dawson Trotman around the country. And I asked Morkin over lunch, what, what, tell me Tr Trotman stories. And he said once he was with Trotman at a church in the Pacific Northwest, I don't know if it was Portland, Seattle, something like that. And he said Trotman was speaking at the church and he had led the pastor to Christ and discipled him years before. The pastor introduced him that way and Trotman steps up in the pulpit and he says, it's true, I had the privilege of leading your pastor to Christ and discipling him. That's why I'm not afraid to do unrehearsed what I'm going to do right now. He calls the pastor back to his side. He says, point me to somebody in this congregation you led to Christ and discipled. Imagine it. Pastor says, there's Matt back there. Trotman says, Matt, stand up. Point me to somebody in this church you led to Christ and discipled. He points to Steve over here. Steve, stand up. Point me to somebody in this congregation you led to Christ and discipled. He points across the way to Susan. Susan, stand up. Point me. It went like that for seven generations, Morkin said. And when I heard that, I was blown away. And that's the tragedy. The normative has become the exceptional. How can we bring it back again? I think when we each begin to embrace that God who loves us and wooed us to himself because somebody was faithful enough to pass on the message to us has also given us the opportunity to grow a maturity with him that we might be a person who could reproduce reproducers. And Paul had done that with Epaphras. And Epaphras had gone out. And Epaphras, as a result, had started the church at Colossae. And Paul's now writing to them this sort of young church that he wants to encourage to grow and mature in Christ. Paul wrote the epistle while he was under house arrest in Rome, and it's considered one of the four prison epistles that he wrote at that time. Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, and Philemon. And each of these epistles, though unique, reverberate with several common themes. Most importantly, spiritual maturity is linked with learning to care missionally for others, look at Ephesians. Speaks of the gospel's power to reconcile. It can awake the spiritually dead and reconcile them to God. It can reconcile diverse subcultures to one another. The Jew and Gentile could come together and we could apply it further. We can assume rich and poor, educated and uneducated, and yeah, even Democrats and Republicans. It can reconcile those with a wide range of personalities and gifts into a unified body under Christ to do his will in the world. It can equip the church and deploy them into the world with a ministry of reconciliation. And then you've got Philippians, known as the epistle of joy, but it's a joy that comes through mission. Paul writes in chapter 1 of Philippians, my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. 
What were Paul's circumstances? He was under house arrest in Rome, in jail. How does that work? And yet Paul did not bemoan the fact, you know, he didn't say, oh God, I'm going to complain. Why do you have me here? I could be really serving you. I'm the guy that when he went to some places, they said those who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Why do you have me stuck in this jail cell? And he could have gotten his heart bitter and hard and callous. No, he said, if this is where you have me, Lord, I'm going to look for opportunities. He's chained to a praetorian guard. That's like the Navy SEALs or the Green Beret of the Roman Empire at that time. And I think he was looking at this guy and said, um, have you ever heard of the four spiritual laws? Or have you ever heard of steps to peace with God? Or have you ever heard of the Roman road? Or have you ever heard how much the God of the universe knows you and loves you? And he says to the church at Philippi, the saints in Caesar's household greet you at the end of that book. He didn't let circumstances clamp down on his sense of ministry. He saw that was God's choice for him in that particular place. Sometimes you have very limited circumstances. What can I do here? I had a man, two different times I've had men come up to me and say, Jerry, you got to pray for me. I'm the only Christian at my work, and I'm just miserable. And I said, okay. I put my hand on their shoulder. I said, Lord, look how miserable my brother is being the only Christian in his place of work. Please just take him home to heaven now and get him out of here. <laughs> Both times they knocked my hand off their shoulder. I said, what are you praying I said, there's two ways you could look at your circumstance. Either you could be miserable, or you could say, wow, God has strategically placed me for people he loves in my world that he wants to reach for himself. Your own maturation process is involved in the process. And then Philemon, he says the same thing. Philemon, he writes to his friend Philemon. Philemon had a slave named Onesimus. Onesimus just happened to come to where Paul was under house arrest in Rome. And Paul leads him to Christ and sends him back, and he says to Onesimus, I pray that you'll be active in sharing your faith, that you'll have a full understanding of every good thing you have in Christ Jesus. That word, full understanding, that phrase, one word in the Greek, it's epigonosko. You have a lot of Greek words for knowledge. You have oida, head knowledge. You have episteme, from which we get the word epistemology, the academic study of knowledge, and it means skill in Greek. You have gnosko, intimate knowledge or experiential knowledge, but you have epigonosko. It's the most intimate word for knowledge. It's a word that's spoken of the carnal knowledge between a husband and wife. And there's a level of intimacy with God, Paul says in Philemon, that you will not have if you're not engaged in letting God work in you and through you to care for other people around you. And it's interesting to me that that word, epigonosco, reverberates throughout what he then wrote in Colossians, as he connects ministry with intimacy with God. And this is important. So, having heard from Epaphras, who was with Paul in Rome when he wrote to the Colossian church, he wanted this young church to grow in maturity in Christ. And Paul writes with a sense of loving concern for his own grandchildren in the faith. There was a sermon C.S. Lewis preached at Oxford University called The Weight of Glory. I know people who were there when he preached it. They said the entire uh, 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 church, it was St. Mary's, the university church on the high street in Oxford, the entire church was packed. All the floors were filled. People were sitting in the windowsills, they said. As he preached this message, The Weight of Glory, he said, you've never met a mere mortal. There are no ordinary people. Every person you meet will one day be a 
glory, the likes of which you'd be tempted to fall down and worship if you saw them as they will one day be, or an everlasting horror. And all of us are always moving people towards one of those two ends. And the weight of glory is that God has called us, Lewis said, to bear the burden of our neighbor's glory, to be concerned with them. That's a mature understanding of these things. Paul recounts what he has heard of their faith. He says, I heard, verse 4, it was centered in Christ. I heard it exhibited a love for all the saints. I heard it was full of confident hope laid up for them in heaven. The Greek word for hope is different than how we use it. Remember when you were in college and you didn't prepare for the exam, you forgot that the exam was that day. You show up in class and the teacher says, okay, pull out your exam paper, and you go, oh my heavens. And afterwards, you're talking to your friends over your lunch and you say, I hope I passed. And we know we don't really mean much by using word hope that way because we don't have really good hope. The New Testament word for hope is expectation. And these people had a faith in Christ that led to an expectation of what was to come. And I would suggest to you an expectation that God wanted to work for them now in this life as they are. This is powerful. Paul reminds them that the gospel came to them. Came to them, just as God wants to deploy the gospel through you to others. The gospel is always coming. I think since the fall, that's been the case. Adam and Eve go and sow fig leaves together to cover up their nakedness, and they hide. And who comes to them? God. He comes to them while they're hiding. Cain is getting a bitter heart towards his brother, and God comes to him before he sins. And after he sins, God comes to him. God is always coming. How about Pharaoh, hard-hearted as he was? Ten times God sends Moses to him. And how about the prophets? The sinning society gets the prophets. Testimony of the fact that God has not given up on them. And oh, look at Matthew 23. If you want to see something relative to the very heart and passion of God, who comes and who changes and deploys. Matthew 23, seven woes. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. And Jesus goes through seven places where he sees failure in them. The last one, he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You build shrines to the prophets, testifying to the fact that it was your fathers who killed the prophets. Who are you going to get to save you from the wrath of hell, Jesus says to them. Next verse, therefore, I will keep sending prophets to you. He ends that chapter with that great verse, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who stole the prophets and killed those who were sent to you. How I wanted to gather you under my wings like a hen gathers its chicks, but you would not let me. If you know him, he wants to use you as the gathering arms to those around you. The gospel comes to us and the gospel deploys us. And you matter in his program. And as you begin to understand that, there will be a maturation in Christ that will begin to follow in its wake. It's so, so powerful. I can't help but think Paul tells them that the gospel came to them in order to encourage them um, of the part they were to play in taking the gospel to others. 
Furthermore, in verse 6, it says, It is a gospel constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God and truth. Understood epigenosko. There's that intimacy again. And here Paul acknowledges that the gospel is increasing. That means it's dynamic. We're part of a process. We haven't arrived. How many of you said, the day you received Christ, you said, oh, I get it now. Jesus is the perfect entheotropic person, manifest in the hypostatic union, the eschatological ground of all my hope. <laughs> I think those things are true, but you, what did you know? First John says, what did we know as new believers? We knew that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that he loved us, that he wanted to have a relationship with us. It wasn't much more than that. But you know what? This gospel message is so simple a child can understand. And so deep, the greatest scholars have never been able to exhaust the depths and the breadth and the wonder of it. And so Paul, Paul recognizes it's increasing. Maturation is a process. He also links our participation in spreading the gospel with that whole part of spiritual intimacy. So how do we grow? How will we grow? I think there's lots of ways, but I can think of at least three that have been true in my own life. Number one, um, I, I, I grew up, I went to a church, but I never heard the gospel there. I was told if I went to a movie and Jesus came back, he wouldn't go in the theater to get me. I'd just go straight to hell. I wanted to see Walt Disney's The Shaggy Dog, but didn't know if it was worth risking my eternal destiny to go see. <laughs> and when the neighbor lady, Mrs. Greenlee, came down and asked my mom, if my brothers and I could go with her boys, Mike and Fred, to go see the shaggy dog, I'm looking at my mom with ambivalence. I've shared this story here before many times. I want to go on one hand, scared stiff on the other, and when my mom said I could go to the movie, I began to wonder if she really loved me, that she'd put my life in such eternal peril. <laughs> I was told if I lived a holy and righteous life, the last sec uh, 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 but had a bad thought the last second of my life, I'd go straight to hell. I deduced from that as a boy, about eight or nine years old, if I could lose this based on what I do, I have to gain it based on what I do. I never understood the love of God in that. Totally conditional. There was no unconditional love in that. And when I finally heard the gospel as a freshman in college, I was so overwhelmed by the message that God loved me unconditionally and forgave me of all the sins I was very aware I had. And I wanted to tell everybody about him. I still do. I want everybody to know that should flood all of our hearts. Well, I'd talk to my friends about Jesus. And they would ask me questions. I'd never heard. I, 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 I'm embarrassed to tell you. I had never heard the question or even thought about the idea of God's good and all-powerful. Why does evil exist in the universe? Never even crossed my mind. I've since written a book about it. So it's a theme that is concerning to me. But when the question was first asked, I had no clue. I said, you know what? That's a really good question. Some people ask questions and we say, uh oh, don't involve yourself in sharing gospel. They might ask questions too hard and I don't know the answer. But I thought to myself, this person's life matters. If that's the question that's the obstacle keeping them from faith, I'm not going to leave a stone unturned until I find out. And I would get back to him, and I'd say, this is what I found out. I don't think we ever get to the bottom of these questions, but I think we could get substantive answers to these questions. And as I was sharing my faith and people were asking me questions, I was growing as I dug for answers. There's a level of growth you won't have unless you're sharing the gospel because you're not hearing the concerns. If people say, I don't want anything to do with Jesus because the church is all screwed up, how are you answering that? 
And if you don't have an answer for it, you need to learn one so that you can talk to that person who's using that as an obstacle, keeping them from understanding how deeply they're loved by Christ. I grew because people asked questions. Second, I grew because people scrutinized my life. I had a friend once, and he said to me, I'd never share the gospel. Or, excuse me, I'd never put a Christian bumper sticker on my car because if I did, I'd have to drive better. You share the gospel, people are going to scrutinize your life. Is your life matching the words that you speak? And as you share the gospel, you recognize, you hear the criticisms, and you learn from them, and you grow. And lastly, you start seeing Jesus show up. I, I, I have this, this thing that happened to me over the last couple of years, but it came to a head about three weeks ago. My wife and I were in Belfast. I was teaching a course there for two weeks, and we had the weekend free, and we wanted to go to the Outer Hebrides, uh, the, the islands on the western side of Scotland. And we found out we could get there from, from Ireland, North Ireland, on a ferry about an hour and a half. And we only were going to have six hours when we got to, Belf, uh, to, to uh, this, this island called Isla. And so we went over, and, and we, we looked around. We thought we'd get a maybe a taxi to show us around. And, and this guy's getting off a fishing boat, and I said, do you, know, do you know if there's taxis around here? He said, no taxis here today. They're all on the north end of the island. There's a wedding up there, and there aren't that many taxis on the island. And I said, well, is it appropriate to hitchhike on this island? He goes, where do you want to go? I said, well, we'd just like to see you around a bit. And he says, I'll take you. And he drove us around and gave us half of his day driving us around. And I said afterwards, do, do, do you mind if we, uh, if, if we buy you lunch or he said, uh, buy you some gas for your car. He said, no, 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 you don't have to do that. That's the way we are on the island here. I said, what do you like? He said, I love quotes. I just love quotes. Well, years ago, I did a book on the quotable C.S. Lewis. It's like 600 pages of quotes from Lewis, and they're all topically arranged, and they're indexed and cross-referenced and stuff like that. And, and I'm thinking, I know what I'm sending this guy. And I sent him the quotable Lewis. I never heard back from him. So just recently, just a few weeks ago, I went back to that island. I was with a couple friends. And we took a boat ride. And when we got to the harbor, it was where this guy had had his boat. And I said to the guy driving the boat, do you, do you have any idea about this guy who is a fisherman here? Uh, he drove us around the island a couple years ago, and I, I, I sent him a book. Are you the guy that said Don, sent Donald Holyoke the book, quotable C.S. Lewis? <laughs> I, 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 I go, yeah, how do you know that? He says, he told me about it. I said, you're kidding. I said, well, I, I'd love to see him. And this guy made the arrangements, and I saw him about two hours before we left the island. And he said, I loved that book. It got me thinking about God. I think I want to grow closer to God. And I shared the gospel with Donald Holyoke on the dock on Isla, and he gave his heart to Jesus. I don't know about you, but I find that story incredible. That something that happened two years before of a person I thought I'd never see again, and I had the joy of leading him to Christ. God shows up in your life. When you let him, who allowed somebody to come to you, deploy you into the world where he wants you to get your arms around somebody else.
Now, I have to say one more important thing about this text to make sense of it. It says that he's going to strengthen us in verse 11 with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who's qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints. The word, therefore, uh, steadfastness is really endurance. We'll have endurance in the midst of it. But he's going to strengthen us in the process. And that strengthening process isn't always um, pretty. When I was in college, after I became a Christian, I shared Jesus with a guy named Larry Nethercutt. He, he, he was a, a hippie guy, and he did a lot of drugs. I remember him coming out of his smoke-filled room and sharing the gospel with him, and Larry gave his heart to Jesus. And we started meeting. One night I was up in the dorm, and the guys came knocking on my door, and they said, Jerry, you can't believe it. All the guys are in the dorm lobby, and, and, and they're doing these. It, it, it's crazy. You lay down, they put a towel over both sides of your head, and they jump on it three times. you got your eyes closed, and you can't sit up. You just can't do it. It does something to you psychologically. I said, forget that. I could sit up. So I go down. The dorm's full of people. You close your eyes, they put the towel down, they jumped on both sides, pull the towel off, and I sit up and I find my nose in a guy's rear end. <laughs> Everybody's laughing at my expense. I'm furious, and somebody says, let's get another one. And I go, yeah, because it deflects the embarrassment, see? And I go running up the stairs, and who's coming down the stairs? Larry Nethercutt. I said, Larry, you got to do this. He sat up. He opened his eyes, turned to me and gave me the look I think Jesus gave Peter when Peter betrayed him. He wasn't so interested in meeting to talk about Jesus much after that. I asked his forgiveness. I would pray for him. The year after we graduated, I read in the campus magazine that he had died. I don't know how. I believe even when the witness isn't so good that God remains faithful. He says he'll be faithful even when we're faithless. And I hope to God I get to introduce you to him one day. But I failed as a witness. And I have remembered that for years. Because sometimes we can screw up and we can think I'm not doing that anymore. And that's the wrong approach. He gives us endurance and he strengthens us that we might even learn from our mistakes. No place in life do we quit after we screw up. If you're married, how many of you are married in here? And how many of you have never had conflict in your marriage? And how many of you decided after the first time you had conflict, I'm not doing this anymore, it's too painful, you make mistakes? How many of you are employed? How many of you have ever made a mistake at your place of work? How many of you have said, I'm quitting because I made a mistake. This is not for me. Or you're in school. Did you ever fail a paper, get a wrong mark on your paper? Do you quit? Or do you get back up and get in the game? He strengthens us. We learn from our mistakes. He encourages us. And we get back in the game and we see joy because we learn intimacy with the God who will not abandon us even in our weakness. 
few years after the Larry Nethercut story, I was a youth pastor at a church in Southern California, and a junior high kid comes running up to me. says, Jerry, I got this guy I want you to talk to. He just got back from Nepal studying Tibetan Buddhism with the Dalai Lama. I'm going to introduce him to you tomorrow night. I don't know anything about Tibetan Buddhism. And the next night, what happened? Here's Todd. He says, Jerry, this is my friend Steve. Steve, this is Jerry. And Todd goes running off. What do you say? I said, well, Todd says you've been traveling a little bit. I'd like to hear about it. We set up a breakfast appointment for the next morning at 7 o'clock. And Steve told me his story for four hours. Had a girlfriend who died. Wondering about the meaning of life. Took him on a quest and he went and studied with the Dalai Lama. I said, you know what, Steve, I think my wife would like to hear your story. He came over for dinner Thursday night. And every Tuesday morning and every Thursday night, we met. And slowly over time, he heard the gospel. And after nine months, there's the endurance. There's the fortitude. There's the strengthening for the long thing. If I would have quit with Larry, I'd have missed out on Steve. Steve came to Jesus. He went on and became a medical doctor. He's actually written a book on C.S. Lewis, teaches a course at his church. I just got back. He was on that trip with me where I was overseas this last week, he and his wife. God is in the process, and the process is going on in you. And maturation and intimacy with God is connected with sharing your faith in Christ. I remember one time my wife said to me, Jerry, I think I'm just a begat. I said, what do you mean? What does that mean? She said, do you know in the Bible it says so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so, and you never hear of them again? And I thought about that for a couple days. It was intriguing to me. And I went back to her and I said, you know what, Claudia? I think the begat role is the role most of us play. But it's a very important role. You see, Judges' key verse is not there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The key verse of Judges is Judges 2.10. There came up a generation that did not know God. That meant somebody dropped the ball on the begat role. God came to you. God wants to deploy you. Don't drop the ball because he wants to get his arms around others through you. Let's pray. Father, build in each of us that intimacy that is linked with your mission in the world. Help us to be responsible to it and help us in the midst of it to find joys that we would not find any other way. Help us to discover your presence in our life and help us to see transformation in the lives of others as they have the joy of knowing that they are loved by you, forgiven by you, and have hope in you. And we ask this in Christ's name.